Today we are um, continuing our sermon series, a study in the book of Mark, the second gospel written. And if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to chapter one? We're going to go four verses. I love going deep, nine through 13. We will take this apart for the glory of God. Um, last Sunday, we talked about John the Baptist, his ministry, and that first big announcement that all the roads that Old Testament was weaving, were, were, all the roads were terminating now here at the message of John the Baptist proclaiming that Jesus has come. Today, we're picking up on the second big announcement. You'll hear that announcement in just a moment. Next Sunday will be the third big announcement found in the Gospel of Mark, and it's that the kingdom of God has come. The question is, what's this announcement? Let's read. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open. We're going to return to that word, torn open. And the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. God, the aim of today's message is not for us to be able to say what a sermon. The aim of this message is for us to be able to say What a Jesus we serve. Would you help us see that? Would you help me communicate that today? Would you soften the crusted soils of our hearts so that this word and this reality and the implications of all that is here, we could be living it out for your glory. Or help us do so. In your name we trust. Amen. I like to begin always with a question. And the question I want to ask today is, does theology matter? Does theology matter? Do the things that, and by matter I mean, is it important? Do the things that we preach on that are theological, does that matter? Does it matter for you to know theology And theology means a study of God, the subject of truths, the study of what Christianity teaches. Does that matter? Especially if like most of us maybe feel like, I think I know pretty much everything, (laughs) at least the main things. Or maybe if you're thinking, it's kind of boring. It's not that interesting. It's not that glamorous. There's a Christian organization that polls 3,000 Christians, professing Christians, every two years, and then releases the study of the, of the findings. And they ask the participants, 3,000 adults, do you agree, strongly agree, don't know, strongly, di- uh, excuse me, somewhat disagree, strongly disagree, 35 
biblical statements, and here's what they have found. Here's statement number one. Worshiping alone or one with, with one's family is a valid replacement for regularly attending church. 67% agree. Nine are unsure and 24% disagree. Out of these 3,000 Christian professing adults, this was another statement. Holy Spirit is a force, but is not a personal being. 59% agree. 26% disagree, and the rest are unsure. Jesus, and here's where we want to go. Here's another theological statement put out. It's tragic, by the way. It's tragic. Jesus is the first and greatest being, and keyword, created by God. 55% agree. 13 are unsure and 32% disagree. One more, another statement. Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. Sadly, 53% agree. 11% are unsure. 33% disagree. And God 100% disagrees with that. God 100% disagrees. He says that here when he calls Jesus his son. And I think, you know, what would you say? This would be a good conversation starter. Why is theology so in the background in the church? And I think one of the reasons is, is because as Americans, we love stuff that works. Stuff that elevates our marriages. Stuff that fixes our finances. Stuff that increases our productivity. Stuff that floods us with dopamine. I mean, the stuff that works, the practical stuff. And theology, whatever the teaching is about God, doesn't really matter. Man, we do so at our peril. We do so at our peril because two reasons why theology is so important. And where I'm getting at here is because we're going to do a lot of theology today. First reason is because theology is a matter of life or death. Theology may not impact your Monday, but far more than that, it impacts your eternity. People who do not believe Jesus is God aren't welcomed into his joyous presence when we pass away. People who call God a liar, because he says here, my son, and say, nope, he's not, won't be getting along well with God in eternity. It's practically eternal. <laughs> what do you believe about God? Some people, another reason why theology is so important is because it supports our practical lives. Uh, it's the foundation. And you know, the foundation of our practical lives. So when we talk about how to be better at life, what it should be supported by is strong, theological, rich truths. And, the, and listen, foundations are not glamorous. Nobody ever likes foundations. When a building is being built, nobody comes to the building site and is like, my golly, what a foundation. You don't flip through a magazine and find a picture of a house and say, honey, come over here. We can't see the foundation, but I bet you it's awesome. Nobody cares. And yet that's on which the house stands. And yet we want to talk about how to get this better and how to work on this, how to this. But all of that is based on and is supported by deep theological truths. 
So yes, theology matters. And in this text, we have to talk about who Jesus is. His identity is being revealed as the son of a God. In fact, what I want to talk to you today about as the key verse is verse 11, but we're going to look at the whole context and four verses. And we have three main points today. Jesus is humbled or humbles himself. Jesus is exalted here. And Jesus humbles himself yet again. He's the exalted, humble servant. That's what we see here. Highs and lows. One low, one high, one low. So let's look at this. Let's look at verse 9 and just talk about this. The humbling of Jesus. He is a servant. That's his identity. A humble servant. And verse 9 says, in those days, the days of John the Baptist, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Real quick, lots of, lots of truth packed into that. Nazareth is not a cool town. It's a no town. And for us, it's like, well, is it Nazareth? I don't really care. It could have been Spanaway. It doesn't really matter to me. It says Nazareth. It doesn't say Nazareth. You know, to us, we don't get it. But we do care about this stuff because, you see, uh, cities spoke of credentials. Cities gave you a certain credentials where, where you come from. And, and, and an analogy of that is sports. Uh, there's going to be an NFL draft in just about, I don't know, one month or so. I, I'm, I'm not really actually sure. And, and guess what? When the Seahawks select their pick for somebody to join them on their team, and this so-and-so person played for the University of Alabama, you're like, all right, I'll just check him out. I, I think he's probably good, but let's see what he is. But imagine if the Seahawks chose someone from a community college. And alma mater, my alma mater, the best college, Green River College. You would think, is he good? And better yet, he can't be good. This is why Nathaniel says, when he hears that Jesus comes from Nazareth, says, can anything good come out of that? Because it was such a city of significance. Jerusalem was, and whoever's going to be big, like the Messiah, he got to be coming from Jerusalem, or at least on the fringes. He comes from Nazareth. Yep. He's identifying with the lowly. He's one of us. He's one of those people who maybe is poor and so forth. And then we read in that verse 9, a big problem for us. He was baptized. He came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Okay, this, is, this poses a big question for Christians. Why was Jesus baptized? Because the baptism of John, and baptism here means you go under the water, you come out of the water. By the way, we have baptism June 4th. You want to take baptism? Great, great promotion. The announcement is in the Bible for you. Um, but why was Jesus being baptized? Because the baptism of John the Baptist was for repentance of sin, for forgiveness. And Jesus had no sin. So what is going on? It, and Christians throughout centuries have come up with a lot of clever solutions like, why would Jesus need to get baptized? We, all, we definitely know he's setting forth a pattern for his future followers that baptism is the way we follow him. 
But there's something deeper going on. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus gives us the reason. And he says this. Let it be so now. So John the Baptist sees Jesus come. He's like, no way, Jesus. And he says, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The will of God for Jesus stipulated somewhere, my son, I want you to get baptized. You don't need to. I want you to. I need you to. My will for you is to be baptized. And Jesus, not having to, obeys. He's humbled. He submits himself to the Father's will. Righteousness means all that God requires. And part of God's will for Jesus was to be baptized. And Jesus says, yep, Father says it, I'm doing it. By his obedience, Jesus shows us that nothing is too significant for us if it's required. If it's required, nothing is too insignificant for us. Is there anything today required of you that you decided is too insignificant? Maybe a white lie, a light gossip, a little too much food, a little too much alcohol, a little waste of time on things that don't matter, the permitting of impure thoughts to enter the mind for just a few seconds, under-reporting just a few dollars on taxes. Have you decided for any of these things are like, eh, that shouldn't matter? Jesus shows his complete devotion and obedience to the full counsel of his will. Have you deemed anything too insignificant, too unimportant, we wouldn't find company with Jesus on that one. He goes all in. So Jesus here, by being baptized, excuse me, coming from Nazareth, from Galilee, an unspiritual region up north, submitting himself to the Father's will to be baptized, even though he doesn't need to be, shows us a way of humbling ourselves. And then comes exaltation. Look at verse 10. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Mercy Church, this is God's great introduction of Jesus. The ultimate authority has spoken. Jesus is the son of God. Now the spirit descends on him, speaks to the guidance and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry. His experience was to be like our experience when we are given the same spirit. And then a voice comes from heaven. Now check this out. In chapter one of Mark, We get four uh, identifiers of who Jesus is. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So Mark says, he's the son of God. Then John the Baptist, uh, Old Testament prophesies of the coming kingdom and Lord. 
Then John the Baptist says he's worthy, so worthy, I can't even tie his shoes. I'm unworthy to tie his shoes. And now God speaks on who Jesus is. He's the ultimate authority, and he settles the debate. (laughs) When God speaks, we either line up with that or we don't. When he speaks, he's always truthful. When he speaks, everything he says corresponds to reality. And if reality yet doesn't exist, it starts to exist. Like when he says, let there be light, there was no light. Then light started to shine. God is the ultimate authority. And his declaration is that this Jesus is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What does it mean to be a son of God? It means to have his nature. Just like any creature, any body who has an offspring automatically take on the nature of their ancestor or their whatever the source is. The Son of God speaks to Jesus having the exact nature of God. He is the exact radiance, exact imprint of who God is. And that's a big one. You know, throughout the centuries, sometimes Christians struggle to believe and wrestle with how is Jesus a human? They just assumed he was God and was he actually a human? Today, in our scientific day, many struggle to believe that he is God and he is such. And then he says this, he dotes on him. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. I don't think we could even fathom the love of the father showered on the son. My beloved son, I am so pleased with you. In every way, Jesus satisfies the father. You know, when we give approval, when we take delight in someone, we usually adjust our standards. I'm thinking about as a dad, when my son brings me a painting or an artwork, usually I'm like, oh, son, so proud of you. Looks so amazing. That drawing is just incredible. The truth is, is I'm lavishing this praise on him, but I'm adjusting my expectations. They're in expectations of a six-year-old. Objectively speaking, it's horrible. The painting, the artwork. Anybody have this and your parent, kids keep bringing it to you? You're like, I don't know what to do with them. And slowly you're like to the recycle bin, but you hope they never ask, like, can I get that painting back? But you're like, you're approving of your child and showering him with praise, but you've got your expectations adjusted. Can you imagine what's going on here? The perfectly holy, infinite God with zeal for righteousness, zeal for goodness, who is a perfectly moral God, has no stain, no blemish on him. And he looks at Jesus and he says, I am so, so pleased with you. You know what that should do? Two things for us, mercy. One, it should cause us to say, what a praiseworthy Jesus we have. What a praiseworthy Jesus we have. And if the Father could lavish such praise on him, who am I to ever withhold praise from him? Sometimes I think about myself in church, hands in my pocket, thinking, man, is worship going too long today? Are they singing a different song? Is that a hill song? 
Is it too loud? Is it too quiet? Is that a new member in the band? I mean, but usually I'm thinking like about my sermon. Can we, can I challenge you, church? At the minimum, every Sunday you come here, you see lyrics put up on the screen for you. Discipline your mind, discipline your heart to praise him. He's a praise-worthy being. And if God the Father lavishes praise, we have no reason to withhold any praise. Tell him he's awesome. Tell him he's great. Tell him he's beautiful. Tell him he's glorious. And worship, by the way, you know, like I love to, this image of shipping, like worship. Ship is send. Were is worth. Like ship, send, like Amazon shipping and handling. Here's what worship is. You take the worth that is due him and you send it his way. You take the glory that is his and with your mouth and with your heart, you send it his way. You take how worthy he is and you send it his way. Worship. Worship him. But the second thing, this was should get us, what this should instill in us is to get us to say, one, what a praiseworthy being he is. Two, what a great refuge he is. <laughs> what a great refuge he is. Do you know that for those of you who are in Christ, hidden away with Christ, he del- is delighted with you as he is with his son. He approves of you as he approves of his son. Not because you're awesome. He's awesome and you're in him. You're hidden in him. That's the promise of scripture is that when we trust in him, he puts us, places us in Christ. Can you imagine living your life with the full approval of God's love? Full shine of his face. His face shining on you every morning. Are you in Christ I, I think we should be celebrating this phrase. My beloved son, I am so well pleased because that is true of our, us as well, being in him. And now, he's exalted. So we, we just talked about how he's from Nazareth and he submits himself to the, to the father's will, gets baptized, and God just pours out praise on him, lavishes, declares who he is, and now Jesus is going to enter the wilderness, and he is going to be tempted. Read with me verses 12 and 13. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He's again identifying with us. Uh, This is very, very important. Jesus is going to engage in combat with the devil, but he will not be unarmed. He is armed. And at least in this text, Jesus takes with him two incredible things with him into battle. You know what they are? His identity as a beloved son approved by the Father and the Spirit of God on him. Let me ask you this question, Mercy. For your temptation, for your battle, it's coming tonight, it's coming in the car home, it's coming this week, are you unarmed? Are you armed 
Do you know who you are? Do you know your identity in Christ? And are you filled with his spirit? You know what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Ephesians chapter five, Paul says, be filled with his spirit. Colossians chapter three, verse 16, is a parallel of that passage. And instead of saying be filled with the spirit, it says be filled with the word of God. If you wanna engage in victorious combat with your enemy, in the heat of your temptation, be armed with knowing who you are in Christ and be armed with the word of God. Such is the way we overcome. I love to think of us like sponges. You know, all of us are sponges. Can you imagine being so drenched with God's word? When, something, when someone pokes that sponge, when somebody squeezes that sponge, when that someone slaps that sponge against the wall, when somebody sits on that sponge, when somebody tears that sponge out, what, what comes out of it? Whatever's inside of it. Water. Imagine you being so drenched with God's word, so filled with God's word, that when life squeezes you, when someone pokes you, when somebody throws you with criticism against the wall, what comes out of you in words, in action, is nothing else than that which is in accordance with God's word. Because that's what's in you. See, some of us are sponges, and what's in us is anger, disappointment, envy, comparison, hurt, unforgiveness, bitterness. And when something happens, somebody pokes us, something squeezes us, a trial happens in our lives, what comes out of us isn't anything but what pleases God. But if the word of God fills us and overfills us, what spills out of us is so pleasing to the Father. Don't be showing up empty and empty-handed to your next battle. At least in the marking account, we see him having the spirit of God in him and being armed with the word of God, knowing his identity. What's interesting about this is he's led into this wilderness by the spirit of God. Can you let that sink in for a moment? Look at this. The spirit in verse 12 drove him out. That's a unique word. It's the same word that Jesus will use when he drives out spirits out of demoniacs. So the spirit leads him there, which is so important for us to know that Jesus finds himself in the wilderness, not because he's outside of God's will, but precisely because he's right in the center of it. Oftentimes we ask, you know, God, I'm going through some hard times. What's behind my trial? What's behind this exam that I'm going through? Why does my journey have to be so tough? Now, you got to discern what the reasons could be, but can I give you one great candidate? What's behind it is his love, not his displeasure. Sometimes God leads us into wildernesses for our trials so that we could be weaned off of all the materialism, all the stuff, and learn to trust him. You see, we often want deliverance. God wants our development. 
Jesus is led into this wilderness. He's not stumbling into this wilderness accidentally. There's a purpose and a plan behind it by God. And Jesus is in here, in the wilderness, for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. 40 days. Why 40 days? Pretty much everyone kind of agrees it represents the 40 years of testing by the Israel, Israel people. Now here's a problem we have, and I want us, want us to study this, understand this. For this whole temptation, two verses, we don't read of Jesus's victory. Now Luke and Matthew have far more detailed accounts of this temptation. They give you kind of blow-by-blow account, details, what's going on, what Jesus says, and how Jesus prevails. But in this story, in Mark's telling of the story, there's no mention of his victory. It's implied, it's implicit, it's backgrounded, but it's not on the forefront. And the question is, why? Why doesn't Mark mention the victory of Jesus? Why does it have to be assumed from other accounts or from the fact that angels are serving him and he's with wild animals, which we'll get to in just a moment. We assume he's victorious, but it doesn't say that. I believe the reason is simple, but a glorious one. Mark most likely knew that Jesus prevailed. Of course he did. But he omits it for one simple reason. I'm going to give you two facts about the temptation of Jesus. Number one is Jesus was tempted. Number two, Jesus was victorious. Two facts. From Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you gather it. You got those two facts. He was tempted. He was victorious. Mark realizes something, I believe. He wants us to not only appreciate that Jesus was victorious, but appreciate the fact that Jesus was tempted. Because often, here's what happens, we celebrate Jesus being victorious. And then we skip over Jesus being tempted. Because we're excited by that. All right, Jesus is in the desert, the devil comes. Jesus gives him a big whack to the chin, lays him down with his word. That's like a foreshadowing of how he will destroy him on the cross. Like Jesus is victorious and we're celebrating that. And that's what we're all about. And that's what we appreciate. And we're doing so right. But Mark makes that implicit. And what he wants us to focus on is on the simple fact and make it big that Jesus was tempted. His victory is implicit. Do you know what this means? What a glorious companion and a friend we have in Jesus. Dwell on this for a moment. He was tempted. He didn't need to be. He was tempted. He didn't need to be. He was tempted for our sakes. He didn't just die for our sakes. He lived for our sakes. He was tempted for our sakes. You know what this means? That every time you are tempted, you have a friend with you walking beside you. You can lean over and say, Jesus, help me here. And Jesus says, I've been there. I know what you need. Jesus, I'm pretty greedy. I know what you need. I need to give you some more content, more peace. 
Jesus, I struggle with lust. I know what you need, self-control. Jesus is a friend and a companion and a glorious one because the point here is that he was tempted. He battled it like we battle it. And we fall short of it. We often fail and flunk. He didn't, but he's with us all along. Jesus was tempted. I want you to want to point out something about this remarkable Jesus. He's being tempted by Satan. And I want to point out something very, very important. That Jesus' temptation was limited to 40 days. Satan, although he opposes everything God does and opposes you at the same time, He's also not outside of God's sovereign rule. Those are two tensions in the Bible. One, Satan is a horrible, horrible being, opposing everything good, making enemies out of God. At the same time, he's never outside of God's rule. He's, he's measured. And I want you to know something, Mercy, that all of our temptations, every temptation we face, comes with predetermined, controlled conditions. Did you know that? Every temptation you will ever face, the temperature is set, the intensity is set, so that it will never exceed what you are able to bear. First, first uh, Corinthians chapter 10 says this, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There is a perfect cocktail of temptation that you can dial up for me. And if I walk into it, I'm toast, I'm defeated. I'm bowing at that sin. I'm saying, God, no thank you, I love this sin. There are temptations that are beyond what you can bear. Tonight, there can be a temptation that is so great, that you walk into it, you're done. And that will never happen to you. You will never endure a temptation that is beyond what you can bear with God's grace. Every temptation you will ever face comes with predetermined conditions. And I think this is so important because a lot of us here today may be struggling with things and believe that it's greater than we can overcome. God is faithful. He puts his faithfulness on the line. Think about how much victories Satan scores simply because he convinces us you can't do this. You'll never overcome. You'll never be victorious in this addiction. You'll never be victorious in this temptation. And what we get to say is, God, with your grace, I know I don't have to be in bondage. I don't have to be addicted. I don't have to keep gossiping. I don't have to keep going to that back as a dog returning to his vomit, back to my sin. I can live victorious. The temptation of Jesus was a limited thing. Although it was far more than we could ever bear, but to us, that teaches us a beautiful truth. 
And when we are tempted, he is with us, for he was tempted like we are, but we're never tempted beyond what we are able to endure with God's grace. Amen? Isn't that good? Isn't that encouraging? So Jesus is being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals. What does this mean? I don't know. And most commentators don't know. What this possibly means is just the way when Adam sinned, creation became undone. Everything got ruined, messed up. That the moment Jesus is in the wilderness, creation is starting to recognize who this Jesus is and starts to live in harmony. That's probably what it's indicating there, that creation recognizes their Lord. And then we read that he was ministered by angels. We just say, God, your word is true. Every man's a liar. Trust that that happened. I trust that angels are somehow involved in your people's life as well, that they minister to us. We may not know the specifics. We're not let in on all the specifics. Maybe that's good for us because there will be interesting churches around here. What we, what we all have, all we have is that God ministers to us through his angels. I want to end with something. We'll, get, we'll be ending and we could have the keys up here. Is the conclusion of this. So we talked about how Jesus humbles himself. Jesus is exalted, and he again identifies with us in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan and prevailing. But I love, and I can't wait too long to share this with you, how Mark ends this. Look at this. Remember that word torn? It's in verse 10 the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. That word, it will be used one more time as the closure of the book. See, it's a genius book. It begins with heavens being open and God saying, that's my son. And here's how it ends. I'm gonna go with, Matt, with you, Matthew, Mark chapter 15. Verses 38 through 39. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this, in this way he breathed his last. Excuse me. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last. He says, truly, this man was the son of God. So something that we need to pick up on is this is a beginning of the book and sort of the ending of the book. And at the beginning of the book, God introduces Jesus to us. And in the end of the book, Jesus paves a way for us to come to the Father. God introduces Jesus, opens heaven up and says, that's my son, everybody, follow him. Jesus tears open the curtain, which was the separation between man and God, 
and opens it up and says to everybody, and here is my God, and the way to him is through my death and resurrection, and I have achieved it. The way God introduces Jesus, Jesus introduces God when that one word torn open. Let me put it this way. God introduces his, Jesus as his son, but Jesus pays a way to God by us believing he is God's son who died for, and paid the penalty of our sin and rose from the dead to reign as our Lord. Does theology matter? Yeah. He's God. Yeah, he was tempted. He, he was baptized. He was tempted. He lives a perfect life, dies on the cross for our sin. But the way into those blessings, the way into life with God, the way to be hidden with Christ and have the full approval of the Father is believing in him as son. Do you believe in him today? Do you believe in him today? Is Jesus for you a mere teacher? A guy with pretty cool advice? Or is he more for you? And this is for you. He's inviting, he knocks on your heart and says, come, believe, trust in me. What does that look like? Coming to him in prayer. Confessing him, saying, Jesus, you are Lord. And believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed by the praiseworthy Jesus we serve. God, when you lavish that praise on him, may it not be so that we forget to praise him. Jesus, we praise you right now. We thank you right now. We love you so much. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. Thank you that you have conquered death, the grave, and sin, and evil. And Lord, I pray right now, if there's anyone here today who doesn't trust you as son of God, like this centurion would declare so, that their reality, their understanding of the world would line up with the true reality yours when you said he is the son of God. God, forgive us for our sins. Forgive us and help us. May we live to glorify your name. Amen.